Welcome to Commune. This is Jeff Krasnow. Our mission is to spread the ideas and practices of the world's greatest teachers. We do that through online courses, a weekly newsletter, and this podcast. On the show, I excavate perennial spiritual questions like what is consciousness? What is the nature of reality? How do we live with purpose? Reality is infinite. We experience a narrow bandwidth of it unless we transcend our senses through meditation. We delve into practices and modalities that can heal trauma and help us thrive. Mastering the art and the science of forgiveness is necessary to move through life. A miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love. We explore the spiritual traditions that help us acknowledge that we are all connected by a power greater than us. We are all indeed individuals, yet we need to find collective and communal solutions. We build a sturdy bridge between personal wellness and societal well-being. It's only when you get people who are pursuing their dreams, living their truth, and feeling good that we can actually move the needle of society forward. To learn about our courses, our community, and everything we do, visit us at onecommune.com. Welcome to the Commune Podcast. This is Jeff Krasnow. Okay, today on the show, I speak with Dr. Kara Fitzgerald. Kara received her Doctorate of Naturopathic Medicine from the National College of Natural Medicine in Portland, Oregon, and she completed her residency at the Progressive Medical Center, a large integrative medical practice in Atlanta, Georgia. And Dr. Fitzgerald is on the faculty at the Institute for Functional Medicine. She's also the host of the popular podcast, New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, and the author of the new book, Younger You, Reduce Your Bioage and Live Longer Better. So in our conversation, Kara and I discuss the difference between chronological and biological age and the various different tests that measure bioage. Kara delineates between lifespan and health span and explains the relationship between a process called DNA methylation and aging. We talk about gene expression, epigenetics, and how and why certain genes turn on and off, specifically in relation to certain foods. Kara unpacks her clinical research that led to some astounding results relating to longevity and eventually inspired her new book, Younger You. And lastly, Kara outlines some of her protocol behaviors that you can adopt to reduce your biological age. This was just a fascinating conversation. And if you're interested in functional and integrative medicine-based programs with teachers like Dr. Mark Hyman, Dr. Jolene Brighton, and Dr. Roger Schwelt, on topics such as gut health, sleep, immunity, hormone balancing, Ayurveda, and nutrition, well, you can sign up for 14 days of free all-access to Commune's entire course library, including more than 100 courses on health, personal growth, and social impact. Just go to onecommune.com slash trial. And be sure to support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite pod catcher. 
So longevity is a hot topic right now. And I think Kara has a very unique perspective on it, not as a Silicon Valley based quest for immortality, but as a broader societal good. So without further delay, I present to you, Dr. Kara Fitzgerald. Okay, Dr. Kara Fitzgerald, welcome to the Commune Podcast. So great to be with you. Yeah, likewise. Great to be with you too, Jeff. Yeah, I've been um, looking forward to this for some time and um, yeah, I look forward to, to digging in because your work has been so uh, eye-opening and influential on me. So anyway, so I'll jump in. Um, so in 2020, uh, you conducted a randomized clinical clinical trial that demonstrated that by adopting certain behaviors, people could reduce their biological age. And uh, the paper outlining the conclusions of this study, I believe, was first published in the publication Aging in 2021. Yeah. And eventually, this work led to the groundbreaking new book <laughs> that you recently yeah. released titled Younger You. Uh, in which uh, you outline a protocol um, that helps people reduce bio-age and by extension uh, also increase health span. So first off, congratulations on, on the book. It's, uh, it's fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. So I think that we all have a vague sense for what might help us live longer, mm -hmm. but the notion that you've actually been able to connect certain choices or protocols with specific mechanism, I think is really, really compelling for people and helps people then make those decisions and reify them in their own life. So I'm excited to dive into that. But since um, we're not all doctors, I'll raise my hand and certainly plenty of the people listening are not doctors. Um, I think at the outset, it would be helpful to scaffold our conversation in a little bit of definitional work. Sure. So, um, so first off, can you take a moment to explain the difference between biological age and chronological age? Yeah, yeah. So chronological age is, you know, the number of birthdays we've celebrated, the number of trips around the sun. We can't do anything about chronological age. Um, we tend to associate chronological age with, you know, health and lifespan and all and 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 uh, you know always and, and generally perceive the older somebody is, the more likely they are to get sick, et cetera. So we we attach a lot to chronological age, but it's really just a number. In fact, I would argue that we want to let it go. By far, the more important number is our biological age. So this is how fast our body's actually aging. Um, we have been trying to measure biological age probably since Ponce de Leon, like time immemorial, we've probably been doing that. But uh, in fact, now that we're in what we call the omics era, where we can, you know, we can look at our genes, we can see how our genes are expressed, it's a whole new world into being able to really rather sensitively and extraordinarily measure how fast we're aging. 
And this is changing the face of science, Jeff. Like I can't even underline how significant it is, capital letters, how we think about and how we conduct science given these new tools will forever be different. Hmm. It's, it is fascinating. And I want to get into some of the methods that you discuss in your book for actually measuring mm -hmm. bioage. I know that there's a whole number of different clocks mm -hmm. um, associated with that. But before that, I wanted to uh, untangle a little bit more uh, definitional work. So yep. there's a tremendous amount of fuss uh, made about life expectancy, mm -hmm. um, which over the course of the 20th century uh, grew significantly. I think in 1900, yep. it was somewhere around 46. And by 2000, it was somewhere around 77. And that varies per, on gender. And I'm talking specifically about in, in the United States. Um, I, it's also worth noting that the average life expectancy has actually gone down over the past couple of years, even yep. before COVID. And yep. maybe we can dissect some of the, the reasons why. Um, but lifespan doesn't equate to health span. And you right. elucidate this beautifully in the book. So can you delineate a bit between lifespan and health span? Yeah. So lifespan, I guess, is, you know, we could measure by basically when we die. There's no association with health. So we have done a great job in this country extending lifespan. We, and probably initially, you know, in the early turn of the century, of course, that was also extending health span. Like we developed antibiotics, you know, we were no longer dying of infection and infections, you know, and, and, and we were suffering much less. So there were extraordinary early, um, you know, her medical changes that allowed for a longer life. Um, but today, lifespan may be uh, living in a skilled nursing facility, you know, propped up on pillows with mm -hmm. dementia. So you're not present, you're alive technically, but your quality of life is just, you know, remarkably compromised. We're seeing this in our country quite a bit. I mean, our healthcare spend, the amount of years that we spend with significant illness, thinking about, you know, the drugs that we're taking, the kind of uh, medical care and interventions that we require is extraordinary. I mean, on average, the last 16 years of our lives, we're sick, most of us with mm. multiple significant illnesses. I mean, if that's not the biggest, deepest sort of call to action, I mean, isn't it, it's just unfathomable, right, to think about your final 16 years, you know, being ill. Yeah, so, you talk about that in the book of like, we had 63, I think, was the yeah. the age that you give. And then the next 16 years is riddled with yeah. neurodegenerative disease or mm -hmm. diabetes or cardiovascular disease, you know, kind mm -hmm. of the big killers. Cancer. And sometimes, yeah. yeah, and sometimes multiple at the, yes. at the same time. Correct. You know, you have, I think you included um, one of my heroes, uh, Atul Gawande, he had a, you, a graph from uh, his book, Being Mortal. Can mm -hmm. you describe just, I know this is an audio platform, but maybe you could describe kind of what those graphs tell us about modern lifespan. Yeah. So back back in the day, again, turn of the century, we, we lived largely a good life, but it was short, you know, and then we died kind of, you know, relatively quickly. Um, 
what he describes is a descent into illness. So rather than sort of a straight line across, the line is dropping down, you know, commensurate with ill health. Um, mm -hmm. And it withers eventually to death. So it's lifespan without health span. So early, you've got a short but solid health span, and then basically you die. And then in the modern world, we see a deterioration of our health over time. Um, and, you know, a lot of suffering in those final years. And what he argues, and this comes from James Free's work out of Stanford in the 80s, is that we can live robustly um, till the end of our years here, whatever those are, uh, and then die, you know, peacefully and relatively quickly. And we should be able to do that with, you know, straightforward life diet and lifestyle changes. So hmm. that would be a straight, strong, healthy line. And then, you know, kind of a precipitous, but, you know, hopefully painless and peaceful death. Yeah, I think this slowly descending line, um, like you say, uh, is concomitant with a tremendous amount of suffering. Yes. Um, but it's well, and also... Not just, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, but it's also... And expense. <laughs> yes. And, right? and it's not just suffering for the individual, of course, because mm. you know, the individual is probably relatively drugged at that point. It's suffering for the caregivers who are largely going to be family. You know, they may be... Mm. A, yes, and the expense. So if you... You're your money is going to be going towards big pharma and big, you know, and hospital and skilled nursing care, for, you know, and, you know, home, home care workers, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I think, you know, you do such a good job in your book underscoring this idea because a lot of people associate this kind of longevity movement um, with kind of the Silicon Valley biohacker, for example, and that it's very geared towards the individual. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, you do a fantastic job outlining the social or the societal dimensions of actually living a healthier life or having a longer health span. Because I think at this point, we spend somewhere in the neighborhood of $4 trillion on quote unquote sick care. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I think, you know, the work that you're up to is really trying to undo that. Yes. And, um, and not only have uh, impacts that extend to the individual, but by extension, the individual's families, as you say, and then our whole kind of medical complex yes. that, that we have. So, um, yes. Yeah. It's, 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 uh, it's something that's fascinating. So maybe, Let me can yeah, I yeah. can I just color a piece in for this? So, please, please. so yeah. biological age, not chronological age, but by how fast our bodies are basically breaking down, um, is the biggest risk factor for the chronic diseases of aging. And so, you know, again, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, cancer, um, you know, dementia, Alzheimer's, et cetera. Biological aging is the biggest risk factor. Uh, so when we're aging faster, we're increasing our risk for these illnesses. And I just, you know, a quote from Morgan Levine puts uh, biological age or aging as a profoundly bigger risk 
factor for lung cancer than smoking. So just to give you, put it into context of how potent biological aging is. If we can change the biological age trajectory, so going back to James Free's work, if we can improve health span, to your point, um, we so we will by extension we should by extension a reduce the risk of all of those illnesses and reduce the spend so reduce this incredible amount of money that's going uh towards you know these heroic it's not healthcare it's just lifespan extension and i want to yeah, give you you and you may be heading towards this already in your questions, but they've calculated. So David Sinclair out of Harvard and colleagues um, working with him, you know, just crunched some numbers and put a year improvement at a thirty-eight trillion dollar savings, and maybe and an order of magnitude greater. So if we could improve biological age or or, or lifespan by ten years. That would be like 380 trillion. I mean, the savings of focusing on biological age is just astronomical, the potential. Yeah, it's jaw dropping. I mean, I think we're talking right now, uh, the scale, it's like 120 million people in the United States are diabetic or pre diabetic. So you just think of that. And that's just diabetes. Yeah. I mean, so it is. Um, to the scale that we're talking about. And boy, could we redirect that into organic and regenerative agriculture to actually hit the first, yes. hit, hit the front side of the equation instead of the back side yes. of the equation. Boy, that would uh, um, address all sorts of issues. I think a psychic, a collective psychic shift in our country in the, and it really in the world needs to happen where we realize that we're driving the car, you know, that it's our mm. genes are not our destiny and that, in fact, our quality of life, our health span is, in fact, up to the choices that we make. We are not victims of you know, the illnesses our parents or grandparents uh, succumbed to. Or, you know, conversely, if we, you know, people who have uh, longevity in their family may think that they're impervious. Uh, the reality is the choices that we make day in and day out are influencing greater than any genetic uh, hand-me-down, uh, how well we live. And so there is just a sea change needs to happen where we light on that and it changes how we are. Mm, amen. So can you outline some of the methods that you leverage and other people leverage for actually measuring biological age? Yeah. So we're, we're again, we're talking about gene expression. Um, we're not looking at the DNA directly. Um, we're looking at biochemical marks on and around the DNA that allow genes to be turned on and genes to be turned off. Just a little bit of background, maybe some folks will be interested. Mm -hmm. We mapped the genome the, in early 2000s and we really thought that um, it would answer our questions, that it would be the Rosetta Stone for diseases. This is why you have heart disease. This is why you have dementia. Obviously, you know where this is going. We realized, in fact, that's not the case at all. Um, 
in fact, it doesn't. There is no one gene, one disease relationship, except for the rare uh, exception. And that really focused attention on the field of epigenetics. So epi above genetics, the gene, and that's all the interest. It, intricate uh, biochemical happenings that allow genes to be turned on and off. And one of the most studied, actually the most studied um, and one of the most resilient is something called DNA methylation. DNA methylation is um, when a methyl group, so this is a carbon and three hydrogens, is placed on a promoter region of a gene. So that promoter region will allow it to be turned on or conversely turned off. When there are a lot of methyl groups on this promoter area, uh, that gene will be inhibited. It just can't open up and be turned on. Conversely, when those methyl groups are not on a given promoter region, that gene can be turned on. Um, starting with Steve Horvath, and there's a few people who came a little bit before him, but really Steve Horvath out of UCLA created the first um, biological age clock, looking at patterns of methylation happening on the DNA. And um, his first 2013 clock, um, it's called the pan tissue clock, because you can use different specimen like blood and um, saliva, et cetera, et cetera. But he created that and released it in 2013. And he was able to reliably predict um, age from in utero, where it would actually be a negative number, up to centenarians. Uh, and it, it was correlative. You don't want it completely correlative to chronological age because then it would be only useful to tell age, right? Chronological right, age. Right. Yeah. Um, but it was correlative with chronological age to 0.96. So it was really rigorously associated with chronological age. And it turned out that this first clock, and there are subsequent generations of clocks, but this very first clock was more predictive of morbidity and mortality um, than chronological age again. So it, it was in 2013 with that first publication that we really sort of entered the era of, you know, being able to assess biological age. Got it. And um, since the initial Horvath clock, I think there's been a few other iterations. Yeah, uh, there's second generation this, yeah. and maybe even third generations. Yeah, that might be more predictive. I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting and an evolving field. So um, we will be telling age of different tissues. So, you know, liver age, brain age, et cetera. Um, telomere, even DNA methylation of telomeres, which were the marker for biological age once upon a time, but they've since been supplanted by this science. Um, we can look at morbidity or even there's a, a clock called the Grim Age, which predicts mm -hmm. mortality, you know, better than, again than chronological age by a lot. So yeah, we're, we're really sort of busting into this new era and continuing to refine and, and evolve. So it's, it's, it's very exciting. It's really exciting. I know that you wear a continuous glucose monitor because I've heard you talk about it. I wear one too. Um, and uh, yeah, it's been fascinating and very, um, I mean, w the risk is that one can become uh, um, neurotic <laughs> or <laughs> yeah, that's right. neurotic. Yeah. You yeah. talk about that um, uh, and we can maybe um, later uh, explore that whole idea of I think you called it orthorexia, which is a whole interesting, uh, I guess, uh, kind of when you become a little too neurotic about your own health. But um, 
I'm sure that there are people working on developing what would be the equivalent of a continuous glucose monitor for uh, DNA methylation age. And that's going to be incredible to yeah. be able to see on a, on a snapshot, you know, moment to moment or hour by hour basis, kind of, you know, how your What's mechanism, how yeah. this pattern of energy here yeah. <laughs> is, is interacting with its environment across, you know, stress and food and yes. toxins and, and all this. So I want to move back to DNA methylation because I want to make sure that this is very, very clear to, um, to everybody listening because it's so foundational to what we're going to talk about and to your work. So I think even, I think we need to go even upstream from there and yep. do some biology 101. So go back to, to DNA and what are the, the primary function of DNA? So you want to take a swing at that? Sure, sure, <laughs> sure, can, sure. We can collaborate on it. Yeah. So in the nucleus, in the middle of our, you know, the little nuclear compartment in the middle of our cell houses our DNA, which is, you know, comprised of just four bases. And these guys um, form genes and we've got about 23,000 or so. Um, and just a minority of those will go on to make proteins. So, um, Genes code for the various proteins that grow us, that enable us to make cells and enzymes and, you know, tissue and, you know, and, and on and on, hair, nails, just, just all of us, all of, all of who we are is coded into our DNA. Um, whether a particular gene is on or not is dependent on the cell type, um, the needs of the cell, and um, is regulated again by all of the biochemical marks that are happening at the epigenetic level. So certain genes will be on, certain genes will not be on. So I, I guess I could give you an example. Um, so, so the D DNA is consistent throughout our body, regardless of the cell type. Um, in a liver cell, the region of DNA that will be turned on is associated with the needs of the liver cell. You know, a retinal cell. Likewise, uh, you don't need the genes associated with liver function to be turned on in the retina. Um, and so those are hypermethylated and shut down, you know, brain cell different. So we all, so our cells specialize, even though we have the same DNA, what we allow to be turned on and, and what's shut down um, consistently varies from cell type to cell type. And that's done via epigenetics. I guess I, you know, without I'm I'm probably going to get a little bit confusing here, but so some um, epigenetic changes, so some DNA methylation isn't going to change cell division after cell division. They're all that particular gene is always going to be shut down. A liver cell will not become a retinal cell, no matter you know how much you mess with yourself. <laughs> Thank God. Um, but as we'll get to what the biological age clocks show and what my research shows is that there are labile regions of the epigenome, things that we can turn on and off um, through our lifestyle choices. And I know we're going to drill down. So that's perhaps a little bit more complex of an of a intro. No, that, that's fantastic. So, okay, good. So DNA essentially encodes or holds the recipes or the transcriptions for 
uh, for what our cells make. So like you said, you know, it encodes for hormones like insulin or mm-hmm. transport molecules like hemoglobin or neurotransmitters like serotonin, et cetera. Yes. Um, and the epigenome is essentially the, the on-off mechanisms of those particular genes. And, That's uh, right. And that can um, change in response to a whole host of environmental factors, which you will outline for better or worse. And, uh, and DNA methylation um, is essentially these this kind of lollipop looking thing that's carbon and the yeah. three hydrogens that can connect to um, different uh, DNA groups to essentially regulate that on and off switch. Yeah. Is that a fair understanding? Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's reasonable. So it's able, the that, that red lollipop will bind to one of those four bases, actually cytosine when it's sitting right. next to a guanine. Um, and just visualize these red lollipops dotting that gene. You know, you can just see a bunch of them sort of sticking up in the air. That's how they are denoted in the scientific literature. And it inhibits, you can visualize, it's interrupting a transcription factor from being able to get in there and, you know, and, 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 and access the gene. So they're just, it's just blocking, you know, it's not able right. to open. So it's very, it's, you know, simply a structural change. So when a gene is methylated or mm-hmm. hypermethylated, mm-hmm. its expression is essentially inhibited, right? Correct. Yep. By and Got large, that that's, that's the case. Yes. So like, let's say, let's pick a gene like, um, like the BDNF gene, which mm-hmm. is a relatively celebrated gene um, yes. that has uh, associated with um, neurotropic factor, I believe. Yes. Um, so when the BDNF gene gets hypermethylated, what happens? Yeah, it's not able to be efficiently turned on. So there's a continuum. It. it may be, you know, partially accessible. It may not be accessible at all. And it may be the BDNF receptor. So maybe you can make BDNF, but the BDNF receptor gene is methylated, inhibited. And indeed, um, that has been associated with um, problems. So they've studied hypermethylation of BDNF and yeah, it's associated with stress and dementia and depression and so forth. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's obviously many, many other genes. Like yes. you talk at great length in the book about the tumor suppressor genes, for example. So like BRCA, mm-hmm. um, that's also a gene that can yes. be hypermethylated when you have a uh, methylation imbalance. Is that right? Yeah. Um, and it's not just methylation imbalances when you have imbalances, maybe, you know, it's, it's so much beyond, it's, it's much, uh, greater than just if somebody, if somebody listening is familiar with the methylation cycle and you're taking your B12 and your folate, what we're talking about really zooms out beyond this. 
there are many more inputs that influence methylation than just B12 and folate. So again, going back to what you said, stress, lifestyle factors, adequate sleep, exercise, et cetera, you know, your diet above and beyond whether you're eating methyl donors. So many variables will influence the methylation patterns on our genes for better or for worse. And what's interesting about BRCA, so we know, you know, Angelina Jolie brought it to prominence when, um, you know, she talked about her mom dying of, of ovarian cancer. I I think when she was really quite young and she being a, a BRCA carrier um, had prophylactic um, hysterectomy and mastectomy and um, the minority of cancers are associated with BRCA, the minority of hormone sensitive cancers, really a relatively small minority. What hasn't been understood as much is that we can inhibit BRCA, we can hypermethylate it and mm. therefore increase our risks. It's so it's like our body is, or it's, 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 it's like it has the mutation. Um, and we're just starting to kind of wrap our arms around this. Um, probably we'll be doing this in clinic. Actually, Illumina, the, the lab that um, we used for our research study and is a massive research lab. Uh, reference lab has a test called the grail test that looks far and wide at methylation patterns probably BRCA is in there and is able to give you know risk um, predictions around cancer so this is something that we'll be using I think in routine medicine I think it's just a matter of time the price point needs to drop but these are incredibly important tools and yes as you let me just tell you this actually the aging journey causes hypermethylation of these tumor suppressor genes. So it's not just cancer mm. itself. And that's mm. kind of, that was a big aha for me that, I mean, I because I entered into thinking about epigenetics from the angle of thinking about cancer. Um, and to see that some of the changes that happen in the cancer microenvironment look just like aging was revelatory and really i think illustrates why changing biological age can so potently influence you know other diseases now can you identify with specificity what environmental inputs actually hypermethylate BRCA, for example, or is, um, it, or is that too broad? I mean, we just we can't necessarily say, "Oh no, it's that," or "It's that trauma, or that food, or that stress." Yeah, we're not at that level of granular detail. That's right, yeah. but we can. I think we can know that. Um, we can we can know more broadly the negative inputs that will sort of wonk out in a more general way and 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 really what mm -hmm. we tried to include in our research study um, was our read on the literature on how you can support things happening optimally and there's like phenotypic differences. So this phenotype is what we end up looking like. So genotype is gene expression, what's on and not, and then how that expresses and how it looks um, is phenotype. And so we, our phenotypic expression, like the things that what I hypermethylate in my body perhaps could be different than, you know, the imbalances that are going to show up in your body. 
But in general, I will say on the aging journey, we start hypermethylating uh, tumor suppressor genes and other genes that we want on, our antioxidant genes, you know, when we actually start to turn on our pro-inflammatory genes. In fact, it's so consistent, the patterns in the aging journey, that you can't help but wonder whether or not there's some program, that this is not just chance, this is not just living in a toxic world, uh, something appears to be regulating it because it's really pretty quite consistent. Yeah. And I mean, that brings up, a, I suppose, a broader philosophical or spiritual question of, you know, whether or not essentially we are predetermined to, to age and, and die um, on some level, that, um, that whatever foundational intelligence of the cosmic universe there is out there, um, we have it's an it's an it's adaptive um, from an evolutionary standpoint that we become methylated at a certain point after a full life <laughs> and um, and and an pass away yeah. and I think I think what you're saying is that yeah that may be true however. I think what you dub it epigenetic drift that, you know, by adopting certain protocols, we can slow that epigenetic drift without, yes. you know, having to pursue this quest of immortality, for example. That's right. That's right. And that's going yeah. back to James Free's work. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's an imperative. I mean, right mm -hmm. now we're, beholden to sort of the standard American vision and we're surrounded by, you know, and exposed to excess toxins and, you know, damaged environment, et cetera, et cetera, poor relationships, high stress. Like right now we're pushing the aging program faster. In fact, that's what research suggests that we're aging, biologically, we're biologically aging faster. As you pointed out in the very beginning, um, we are, we're no, our lifespan is cutting back and has been added to with COVID. But um, when we look at the biological age in this country, we see that we're actually aging faster. So our health span is being truncated um, along with our lifespan. And I think it's our imperative. I think we absolutely, if we want to survive as a, as a country, you know, and not bankrupt ourselves, um, we unequivocally have to be thinking about this. Mm -hmm. I don't, mm -hmm. you know, I think that's our spiritual imperative. And then beyond that, what do they call escape velocity where you're like immortal? That's right. a whole nother conversation. It's kind of interesting and I have some thoughts around it, but it's, it's, yeah, it's a different kettle of fish. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that's interesting is like you point out, you point out this Delta, this 16 year Delta of, of, um, gradual decline yeah and i think that's really influenced how we perceive elders you know now we think of elders as the elderly and yes. they're often you know shipped off to some yeah. uh home and oftentimes they're sort of defined within these parentheses of a burden where you know typically throughout history you know, the elders were seen as these founts of wisdom and knowledge. Yes. I mean, I think of like Lao Tzu, the the father yes. of Taoism, you know, he's always portrayed with this 
wizened with this long white beard. Actually, it's yeah. fabled that he was born with the beard. But anyway, <laughs> but it's, um, you know, and that, but we have, you know, this decline, I think, has really changed how we think about our elders. And yeah. it's very sad, actually. Yes. Um, um, yep. So I wonder, is there a, um, a metric for measuring methylation specifically? Uh, is there like a compound that shows up as a, some kind of biomarker? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, we're able to measure yeah. what they call the methylome, which is the entire pattern of DNA methylation. Yes. And that's what we uh, we used, a, 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 it, again, going to Illumina, we used a, um assay in our research study to be able to do that. Yes. So you can, mm -hmm. in fact, look at methylation and look at methylation changes very sensitively um, these days. And is that what is homocysteine? Is that a marker for it? So this is different. So I'm specifically I talking see. about the DNA methylation. For us to make that red lollipop, the carbon and three hydrogens that gets put on our DNA. And let me say, we use methylation all in all of every aspect of physiology all of the time. So methylation is happening everywhere, doing all sorts of stuff. I, my focus is 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 DNA methylation, but we use you know methyl groups to clear out to transform compounds. Like if you want to make adrenaline or if you want to make dopamine, you you use methylation. And conversely, if you want to metabolize that adrenaline out of the body, we use methylation. We use it to uh, transform estrogen to uh, make it into a less uh, active compound. Um, what else? We make, um, you know, neurotransmitters in brain health and, you know, and motor, um, motor neuron um, neurotransmitters, et cetera, all, all use methylation. We make certain fatty acids. I mean, sort of on and on and on methylation. It's happening in the mitochondria and so forth. So we are, we have a methylation cycle that makes these methyl groups. So the methyl groups are carried around the body and used in these methyl transferase reactions. We've got you know, almost 400 of these methyl transferase enzymes, DNA methylation just being one methyl transferase type. Um, mm. And we make them in the methylation cycle. We produce a compound that people have probably heard of. It's called S-adenosylmethionine or SAM. Some people call it SAM-E, same compound. And we make it in the methylation cycle and we're just making, we're pumping it out all the time. And this methylation cycle sort of uses it and then recycles it and then uses it and then recycles it. Uh, and S-adenosylmethionine then leaves the cycle and is used in these various methyltransferase reactions all over the body all of the time uh, and puts methyl groups you know, on uh, where the enzyme uh, dictates. Mm -hmm. So, oh, back to homocysteine. Um, when we when we spend that methyl group, um, so when we take the SAMe and we use it, um, it becomes S-adenosyl homocysteine, and then it's converted to homocysteine, and then it's recycled back up to methionine, and then it becomes S-adenosyl methionine again. So in the cycle, homocysteine is a fundamental and important player um, in regenerating spent SAM. Um, 
As, so homocysteine has been used for many years as a marker of cardiovascular disease risk, and it and it and it and it is associated with it. It also, when we see it very high or maybe even very low, but particularly when it's very high, um, it has been associated with um, less effective global methylation. So as we age homocysteine rises. Um, and as we age, you know, methylation happening body-wide and on the DNA um, is less efficient. So I would say, Jeff, homocysteine is a loose surrogate marker of methylation. So if it's very high, we can say, yeah, methylation is probably is wonky in this individual and we want to be thinking about it. Um, we need to be mindful around drawing too many conclusions beyond that. Yeah. And I'm glad that, that within that commentary, you were clear about the notion that methylation isn't really all bad. It's like we're actually, what we're looking for is the Goldilocks zone. Of yes. We want some genes turned off and we want some gene expression turned on. Yes. And it's it's about actually finding that that balance, that Goldilocks zone w with meth with methylation. No Oops. one should be under the uh, the delusion that that methylation is a bad thing. As you said, oh, it's no, it's protein. It's happening all the time, everywhere. Oh, yeah, it's essential. We so, need functioning. Yeah. We need we need very high function. We we want to keep methylation whirring along as um, you know, effectively as possible. Uh, when we look at DNA, so it's just very interesting because it, it it's it is it's a U curve. We want we want it to be happening at the right place in the right amount. Um, when we age, so when we look at age. DNA, when we look at DNA methylation as we age globally, so if you measure all of the DNA methylation uh, in a given cell, you'll see that we tend to methylate less effectively. So our quantities drop. But you don't just want to turn the volume up on methylation because when you zero in on different genes, you'll see that hypermethylation is happening. So there may be a global decrease, but there's also an imbalance. So again, you know, antioxidants, anti-inflammatory genes are shut down. Tumor suppressor genes are shut down. Pro-inflammatory genes are turned on. Um, and it's this imbalance that we really want to think about correcting. You know, if it were just a matter of turning the volume up on methylation, we could all take a bunch of B12 and a bunch of folate, hmm. you know, and live forever. Um, but there's, you know, it's just a little bit more nuanced than that's quite a bit more nuanced than that. Yeah. So let's specifically dive into your clinical trial uh, to explain kind of how you tested some of your theories about reducing biological age. Do you mind uh, spending some time talking about the nature of that trial and how you organized it and, uh, and then yeah. some of the results that you were able to find? Yeah. So um, around maybe 2013, 2014, I'll give you a little bit of the backstory again, interrupt me. Um, I was thinking, I was reading the literature on epigenetics. A lot of it coming out at that time was related to cancer. You know, and again, cancer very efficiently takes over our epigenetics. It takes over our gene expression, turns genes on for its own survival, turns genes off for its own um, proliferation. I mean, it's just, it's like a bad deal. 
And it occurred to me, so being a functional medicine physician, um, the big question was how, how might we be influencing this? Our, our, our treatments helping to optimize DNA methylation. At that time, I did not know about biological aging. So I entered into it through the lens of cancer. And we ultimately decided in my clinic, I've got an extraordinary team here. And my friend and colleague, Romilly Hodges, who started our nutrition programs, um, she and I decided to build a program to optimize DNA methylation, um, what we thought would. And so just we, we went headlong into the literature looking at all of the variables that negatively or favorably influence DNA methylation and ultimately designed the you know, methylation diet and lifestyle program. And we started to use it here in clinical practice. I published it on my website just as a basic ebook. It was written for professionals. I actually, I actually lectured on it. So in functional medicine, they were really kind of interested. And I, you know, lectured on it in South Africa and Ireland, actually Cleveland Clinic. Mark was interested in this, Mark Hyman, or very early on. And he wanted his, his team over at the Cleveland Clinic to um, understand what we were doing. Um, so exercise, sleep hygiene, meditation practices, um, some basic supplements of, you know, just a probiotic and a greens powder and a very specific diet. Um, this diet is heavy in methyl donors. So lots of leafy greens, nuts and seeds, um, good fats, um, mushrooms, etc., eggs, uh, some animal protein. Heavy in methyl donors, because remember, as I said in, earlier, uh, we don't methylate as well as we age. So we wanted, we wanted to pack them in there. Um, but also very rich in these compounds, the, in phytochemicals, in polyphenols. Polyphenols don't participate in that methylation cycle I've been talking about, but they do influence how methylation happens at, at DNA. They seem to direct methylation to occur in more favorable patterns. And so you brought up the tumor suppressor genes. There's what I think is one of the coolest parts of the book is this table that I constructed that shows different genes that can become hypermethylated, different tumor suppressor genes, and the evidence for the various phytochemicals that will restore activation of these tumor suppressor genes. And so you can look at, you know, nutrients that you can take or food sources that you can get. We have a nutrient appendix that outlines all of these nutrients. Um, So the whole program is designed around optimizing gene expression. Um, we were granted, uh, an unrestricted, um, grant, actually, we're given an unrestricted grant from Metagenics to study it. So we wanted to look at it and, you know, to your point outside in the clinic setting, we would have been able to measure homocysteine. We would have been able to do some very basic measurements that wouldn't really tell us what was happening, um, with regard to DNA methylation. Um, and so it was just sort of a, it was a, rather extraordinary miracle that Metagenics came on board. Brent Eck is their CEO and he's a good friend of mine and was compelled by um, the work we were doing. And so he funded it and we were able to um, use the kits that assess the whole methylome in the research setting. 
I'm so the leap from thinking about cancer to more broadly thinking about nutritional epigenetics, so nutrients and well, and lifestyle impact on gene expression um, was a natural leap. And then as I um, evolved, you know, just my understanding in, ep in epigenetics evolved, I began to piece together the, the extraordinary fact that aging at the level of the epigenome looks like these diseases and most, you know, and sort of most correlative is cancer. And so our program is, you know, is an is, you know, just by the fact that we're addressing epigenetics, a, you know, rather extraordinary anti-aging tool um, because of the shared underlying biochemical mechanisms. Um, and so that became the first, uh, that became the first analysis that we conducted. And um, it was the first study of its kind to show a biological age reversal of over three years in our participants as compared to the control group in such a short, in eight weeks time. It hasn't been demonstrated um, again. There's been some other modest bioage reversal uh, studies to come out. Um, and there was one that preceded it, um, which, which was a year-long intervention. Um, but really, we just, it, it's new. It's just really profoundly yeah. new. Yeah. Well, we, we hear so much about, you know, cellular pathways like the sirtuins or mTOR or AMPK, uh, et cetera. But most of those studies really have been done either with yeast or, um, right. or, you mice. know, in vivo with mice, you know, so yeah. we haven't really seen, um, uh, human studies, um, on mass. And so can you take us through, uh, um, you know, how you ran your study specifically? Um, what were some of the protocols that you administered and, yep. uh, how long did the study run for? Was there placebo group, et cetera, and, and, mm -hmm. and, and some of the conclusions you yeah. mentioned already. Yeah. But yeah. So the paper, link to the paper, if you, if you can, yeah. and link to the book. So the book will ho really hold your hand through it. We actually have an app where we're continuing to study. So remind me, Jeff, to tell you about some of our um, preliminary findings that I'll be writing up uh, soon. So the app will completely hold your hand, the book will partially hold your hand, and then you can read the paper, which is written in relatively plain language. Um, and it has the protocol and it's, and it's the full text is, is free. It's open source. Um, so the, the eight, it's a eight week program. The diet is very plant forward. Um, you're, you'll be eating about nine cups of, of vegetables per day, most of those greens. Um, we've got uh, a variety of, you know, gene whispering foods that we think um, one needs to be consuming with regularity. So beets, eggs, liver. Liver is such a dense gene whisperer. You don't need to have it every day, maybe three servings a week. Um, you know, again, a bunch of greens, um, 
mushrooms. Mushrooms are extraordinarily potent in important, you know, methylation associated nutrients. So shiitake is one of our favorites. Green tea, curcumin, um, seeds like pumpkin, sunflower, um, good you know, good healthy fats. You can do a little bit of um, medium chain triglycerides or, um, you know, fresh fatty fish. Uh, so no, I don't think any of the elements in the diet would surprise, you know, somebody who's got a healthy eating pattern. The quantities and the fact that we lean on beets and some eggs and so, there are there are some unique components to it but it is a healthy eating pattern um, mild intermittent fasting so nothing or time restricted eating so 12 hours on 12 hours off um, it's very low glycemic it's very uh, low uh, hypoallergenic and low inflammatory no grain no legumes no dairy in the first eight weeks i do i'm a fan of legumes so people transition into it after but just in this first eight weeks we really wanted to control glycemic cycling um and minimize any negative reaction so you know a lot of people react to beans just with gi distress and so we just pulled them out for that first eight weeks but you know, for anybody out there who's thinking I'm anti-bean, I'm not. Um, it's keto leaning. Uh, so we saw our subjects drop triglycerides. Triglycerides, uh, you know, when we're in ketosis, we're burning a lot of those fats and our participants reduced their triglycerides by, you know, a significant amount. And so they were probably in ketosis. And so that's the, that's the basics of the diet. Good hydration. We didn't insist that our participants eat organic. Obviously, if you can eat organic, that's fabulous. Um, but it's nice to see we got these results without insisting on organic because it just makes it more uh, broadly attainable to a variety of income levels. Yeah, obviously not as nutrient available, um, perhaps in, in non-organic given the that's nature right. of gly glyphosate and its chelating yes. <laughs> capabilities and all that kind of stuff, but that's a whole nother. <laughs> well, there's no doubt but, yeah. if you can do organic, we, you know, do it. I mean, there's just no yeah. doubt about it, but um, it's also nice to have it available when, you know, Absolutely. organic isn't. Yeah. So you administered this, um, this protocol, uh, this diet um, for eight weeks. Mm -hmm. And I assume that you were uh, running bioage. Um, Yes. Uh, on either kind of throughout the whole process or just kind of at the beginning? We the did end? a baseline. Did so we did a baseline midway and then final. Uh, mm -hmm. We certainly didn't need to do a midway. It's, it, 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 there was no significant change in midway. Maybe there was a slight trend towards lower bioage, but yeah, we did it at baseline and final. Yeah. Um, really important in our study and we got some biological excuse me we got some other standard measurements some standard chemistries lipids and so forth we measured folate um, we measured uh, other methylation so we looked at homocysteine and some of the other methylation cycle um, markers so we looked at a host of different stuff at baseline and then at the end um, we had our participants work with our nutrition team um, each 
participant was required to meet with a nutritionist at least weekly, more if they wanted to, and it, for the, at least the first month. I, If I was going to point my finger towards one success factor, this is a complicated intervention, uh, and leaning on our nutritionists, I think, was the difference between success and failure. We did get adherence data on our participants, and we can see that they did a good job. It's actually, it's quite extraordinary. In fact, my co-PI, who um, is the director at HealthGut Institute, uh, and that was the clinical research center we hired to run our study. Um, he was studying us to see how successful we would be because it was a really complex intervention. And yeah. knowing that and knowing that I'm probably not going to be handed another unrestricted grant like this, I really wanted good <laughs> adherence. And so having our nutritionists right in there and lockstep with the participants um, made a huge difference. Yeah. And so I think it's worth mentioning that this first study was focused on males, right? Because there were just too many confounding variables with women and menopause and hormones. Yeah. For this so we, one, right? That's right. So we wanted to look at when methylation gets wonky, basically. I keep saying, you know, mm -hmm. as we age, it changes. It really kind of deteriorates. And so we wanted to look right in the sweet spot of when that starts to happen. And so we, we included um, men aged... 50 to 72 in our study population. Um, women in that age range would be anywhere from pre, peri to post menopause. And our, our numbers, our study numbers, it's a pilot study. So the numbers are, are, are relative, are low because um, it was expensive. Uh, and <laughs> if we had the confounding variable of different um, time, hormonal changes, that would have been difficult for us to um, gauge response and sort of tease out the hormonal influence. Um, but I want to say to your point, Jeff, that we have a small cohort of women who just finished in our app within the same, I think within the same demographic. So in the same age category and they just, they did fabulous. I mean, I can't wait to write it up. They actually did better than the men did in our research study, although we used a, a slightly different clock. So it's not apples to apples comparison, but it's really exciting for me to be able to say, yeah, you know, women rocked it. And I've been measuring my biological age for a long time and I've been doing this program for a while. So I've seen my favorable N of one changes, but um, yeah, it looks like, mm -hmm. you know, women are as responsive and maybe a little bit more than men. Amazing. And remind us, what did you see in the end in terms of biological age reduction uh, in the participant group? It, okay. And it be sh I want to circle back and talk about the lifestyle pieces as well. Um, yeah. As compared to controls, our uh, study participants were 3.24 years younger. Um, when we compared them to themselves, so where they were biological at their biological age at start versus finish, they were two years younger. Um, amazing. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing. And in, in mean, eight, eight weeks, weeks time. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, it's so exciting because it also shows how sensitive uh, the body is and how, if it's well nurtured, <laughs> it yeah. really wants to heal. It really wants to be uh, thriving and, and not just surviving. And it's amazing that you were able to accomplish that over eight weeks. One of the really cool things to me is really one of the coolest is that 
when we look at the other methylation data that we gathered, so homocysteine, S-adenosyl methionine, et cetera, et cetera, we did not appreciably change that. So our participants were healthy, and that's an important point. People who are sick, so if we had done this study in diabetics, they're going to be biologically older. So all of these chronic diseases of aging are associated with biologically older ages. And if you reverse the diabetes, you will reverse biological, you'll slow biological aging or reverse that. So your average diabetic is maybe six to eight years biologically older than, you know, a a non-diabetic counterpart. Um, but we were looking at healthy guys. So they didn't have high homocysteine. They didn't have high blood sugar, et cetera, et cetera. So we didn't appreciably change those methylation markers. What it looks like we did is rearrange where methylation is happening on the genes to a more healthy and more youthful pattern. So we moved those lollipops around, which I just think is so compelling and really interesting. And we actually still, Jeff, have more data to investigate and publish on. So going back to hypermethylation of tumor suppressor genes, I can see that we changed methylation status in the promoter region of our study participants considerably. Um, And that's something that I'd like to get into and sort of tease out a little bit more and and write it up. Yeah. Were you looking at other biomarkers across this time to like fasting insulin or CRP or triglycerides, LDL, et cetera? So we looked at triglycerides and we did. We dropped our triglycerides in our participants significantly. And that to me suggests that they were probably in a little bit of ketosis. Um, we dropped their total cholesterol as well significantly. Um, LDL, LDL in our study participants as compared to baseline dropped. Um, but we didn't change other markers. Now, remember, they're healthy. We didn't measure right. fasting insulin, um, blood sugar. We did a standard chemistry. Nothing appreciably changed there. So, yeah, the, the only we increased folate. So we increased methylfolate. No B vitamins anywhere. Uh, no for, folate fortified foods were allowed. Uh, so naturally, with the diet and lifestyle interventions, we increased circulating methylfolate uh, significantly in our participants. So um, bioage as measured by DNA methylation, triglycerides, cholesterol, and um, folate were the markers that we saw change. Got it. So if I'm understanding correctly, you're essentially saying that methylation patterns are nutrient sensitive. Is that a fair understanding? Yeah, I think so. And I want to say again, it's a continuum. So like Mm -hmm. I said earlier, you're not going to turn a liver cell into a skin cell and you don't want to. (laughs) You want those methylation patterns to be rigorous. You don't want them going anywhere. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) But, But there are these regions of sort of more changeable, more environmentally responsible uh, or responsive, excuse me, uh, DNA methylation uh, patterns. And yes, um, I've termed them nutrient responsive genes and we're just tapping, you know, tapping this area. We'll be looking at it, you know, for hopefully years and years to come. But yes, there are nutrient, there are nutrient and lifestyle responsive. So not even just nutrient. Let me, I mean, let me tell you this wild factoid. I need to talk about the lifestyle factors, but exercise, which we prescribed in our study behaves like 
those phytochemicals that allow tumor suppressor genes to get turned back on. Like exercise acts like a vegetable when you look at the epigenome. <laughs> <laughs> so which break I that just down think a little is bit. so cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so break that down a little bit in terms of the type of exercise, because uh, I think there is some debate right now around, yes. you know, high intensity interval training or more like right. zone two exercise. You know, what were you prescribing, and you know, what is your current understanding of what the appropriate kind of exercise is that we should be getting? Yeah, good question. So we needed our, this program had to be doable. In fact, one of our reviewers, when we published, said, commented on that, the fact that this is a doable program. You can't do a drill down into really sort of elite kind of very individualized prescriptions in, um, you know, a randomized control trial like this. I mean, you can, you can, I think if you have endless funding, but it's challenging and it's difficult to repeat, et cetera. So we just prescribed a very foundational exercise pattern, 30 minutes minimum, five days a week, 30 minutes minimum, five days a week, perceived exertion, 60 to 80% of max, do whatever you Mm -hmm. want. So Mm -hmm. 30 minutes, five days a week was it perceived exertion up, you know, up to 80%. Um, you know, that might be walking um, a little bit briskly. I mean, my 80% perceived exertion is going to be different than yours. Um, some of the guys in our study, these again, these were healthy men. Some of them had to dial it back for this study time period because we prescribed such a modest intervention. Some of the guys walked to work, maybe walked the dog a little extra. Some of them, you know, gardened or cleaned or biked or whatever. Um, but we wanted it to just be simple and doable. Uh, in the book, I talk more broadly about exercise. Yeah, I think, um, right, there's good evidence around zone two. Um, there's amazing evidence around high intensity interval training. I would say in general, you know, there's good evidence in resistance training. Um, You know, as Morgan Levine says, exercise is anti-aging pill, you know, (laughs) basically. I mean, it's like one of the most important interventions we can do. I think a precise prescription will uh, for each of us. So I think there's going to, we're going to find individualized ideal prescriptions. Um, and this will happen as we're able to measure biological age more readily. So what's my sweet spot? It's going to be different than what your sweet spot is. But we know we want some muscle. We don't want to lose it all. Uh, we want some resistance training, super essential. And we can see that that favorably influences DNA methylation. High intensity interval training seems to be um, useful for a variety of indications and certainly turning, uh, reducing risk for all of the chronic diseases of aging. Um, I think that, uh, you know, the most important is a consistent pattern of doing it, doing something that you love. Um, what else do I want to say about exercise? There's some evidence that overdoing it is a pro-aging phenomena. So that's in the literature and, you know, specifically relating to DNA methylation changes. So over-exercising and anybody who's ever, uh, 
you know, been a competitive athlete. Like I was a cyclist in college. I was a competitive cyclist. And, you know, at the end of the season, I always got sick. You know, like I always had a round of sinusitis. And you can you can measure the changes in immune response after a season of, you know, high athletics. You're a little bit immunosuppressed. You're vulnerable to getting sick. So there's over-exercise that we want to avoid, um, or at least just do for a finite time. I wouldn't change my competitive years for anything because it was so, so, so fun. Uh, yeah. But I don't know that it's a life extending thing to do. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that there, you know, there, a lot of people talk about hormesis or the hormetic response essentially yeah. what won't um, kill you makes you stronger. So, you know, short bursts of oxidative stress associated with high intensity workouts um, you know, there's plenty of people in that camp. Um, but I think, as you say, you know, you can overdo it certainly in times when I, I was a competitive tennis player, you know, and there would be like weeks where I would just be sore, um, because of lactic acid buildup, because I was in sort of mild hypoxia all the time because I was working out so much Yeah, and, um, and, and I kind of sacrificed my aerobic cellular respiration for, um, you know, fermentation or whatever that, that would produce lactic acid and just make my, and I was walking around, I was sore all the time right. <laughs> and that was no fun. Right. Um, so it's not, it, it seems like there is like a, a middle ground, particularly as we get older. I mean, I'm 51 and sometimes I still play tennis. And when I get out there, I think I'm 26 and I'm very quickly reminded that I'm not, <laughs> but, um, but I think, you know, as I get a little bit, um, wiser as as you say in the book as my potato gets a little cleaner um <laughs> which is a, a zen training um you know I, i've become more moderate you know i do mm -hmm. some resistant training i do some hiking i'll get my um uh, my heart rate up you know a few times a week but Good. it's certainly not like something that i'm i'm doing that all the time do. i yeah. i am doing quite a bit of time restricted eating so i'd like mm -hmm. to talk about um, that component of the protocol. And I guess I'll also just say that in the book, the protocol is laid out for people who are interested in going through it and sort of self-administering it. Yes. And, um, and I want to get into some of the, uh, the self-administered tests or assessments that you have in there. Cause I took it and I want to brag. Um, but, uh, <laughs> cool. I want to just, um, um, prod you for a moment about your thoughts around time restricted eating, you know, how severe does it really need to be to get the results, um, yeah. that we want, et cetera. I, so we, I did not want this to be a study about time restricted eating. I mean, there's plenty of mm -hmm. those going. Um, and again, I wanted this to be broadly adaptable. You know, I wanted, yeah. Like my avatar was like Marge and Boca Raton, I remember talking early on. Like I just want <laughs> anyone or my mom who I who I quote in the acknowledgement saying she's doing it because methylation is good for you. <laughs> like I want anyone <laughs> it's so funny. Um yeah. I just want anyone to be able to do this. And twelve hour a twelve hour window is doable. Like it's just really broadly doable. Do I think and you know Certainly, Walter Longo would argue that this that it's it's where we want it to be uh, around twelve hours. Um, but you know, then there's plenty of other folks. Of course, David Sinclair is a, a large spokesperson for a more severe 
time restricted structure. Um, I think he's eating two hours. He has a two hour feed window. So for me, that would be very triggering, right? I mean, if I had a two hour eating window, I mean, and I I heard him on a podcast say that he goes to eat, he goes out to eat. I, I would be eating a King's feast, you know, at that meal, I wouldn't be making (laughs) sane choices. I wouldn't be having a, you know, nine cups of greens with my beets and liver on, you know? And so for, for me personally, that would be triggering. I think for women in general, we need our structure. We need to be really respectful of, of our bodies Mm -hmm. and um, actually, and, and, and men as well, but it will show up um, differently. Uh, So I think the research on time-restricted eating, on some caloric restriction. I mean, I think it's one of our most potent tools. Um, We all have to look at what works for us. The best evidence we're going to get for a structure working is that we feel good, that our um, uh, biochemical markers, you know, that, you know, our lab values are, are within, you know, optimal range. And I actually include some of those in the book. Uh, and then hopefully we're getting biological age. We're able to get biological age or, you know, you can use the quiz as you're going to talk about in my book, um, to get feedback that we're in the right direction, that we're doing something that works for us. Um, when you, when you're a pretty severe restrictor, um, you'll lose those benefits if you if you fall off mm-hmm. of it. And so it's something that you really want to be be able to maintain for the long haul. That's true for any of these interventions. To we we know from the literature that we can get favorable changes to DNA methylation sometimes with just one activity, um, but it's you know the daily engagement in eating for our, or living for our you know, optimal gene expression, that's really going to make the biggest difference. Yeah, I think you make such a great point around how this cannot be seen as a diet. It really just needs to be seen as a lifestyle, because uh, diets are almost framed to fail, or at least to end. Yeah. And then where are you? And, uh, And so much about kind of a healthy epigenome is progressive it has to be consistent it's just yes. about the way that you live your life yes and um mm-hmm. yeah and and when we think about it so just you know going down to the molecular level or the biochemical level when dna so when we when a cell divides you know the dna also is 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 dividing and that's a key time that we can sort of reshape what's happening with regard to methylation. So DNA methylation marks are going to be placed back down um, or not. And so it's cell division over cell division over cell division over cell division that we can can transform what's happening um, at the level of the epigenome. So we it's mm-hmm. it's it's we want to just kind of settle in for the long haul. And that means that I think one of the ways we can use this book, um, yep. I would say all of us should do our eight-week intervention, but if you're not ready, you know, there's plenty other other to do in the book. I mean, one of my f- most favorite parts of it, in addition to the, the tumor suppressor <laughs> phytochemical table, mm-hmm. is the nutrient appendix. You know, there's yeah. hundreds, you know, maybe thousands of of nutrients that I would, that influence gene expression favorably. And I list as many as I was able to find in the literature at the time of this printing um, 
anybody, the most picky eater, the most resistant, the most standard American diet-driven individual will look in there and find some nutrients that they like. Um, and so maybe that's your entry point into this conversation and you can expand from there. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's broadly adoptable. It can meet people where they're at. I'd like to talk a little bit about community for a moment. Now, I remember before COVID came along, Vivek Murthy, who was the Surgeon General for uh, Obama, and I believe he's the Surgeon General again, um, he um, he made a statement that loneliness is our yeah. biggest epidemic. Right. And I'm interested in in probing a little bit around the nature of community um, versus loneliness and how that actually might be connected to biochemical mechanism. I mean, are, are those factors in methylation, for example? So we know that trauma can cha- will change DNA methylation. We know that we can inherit trauma from previous generations that will show up um, as changed DNA methylation. Um, depression, post-traumatic stress, early life um, challenging events. Um, my So this is the when psychic experience is sort of translated into biochemistry, you can... Um, it, it's extraordinary. So you, again, you can dictate genes, genes on or off, you know, psychic experience is translated into, um, you know, biochemical marks that then influence, um, you know, patterns of genes and both with, with regard to, um, again, going back to um, BDNF or oxytocin, the love hormone, or, you know, genes related to inflammation or metabolic disease, et cetera. So these negative psychic experiences can influence gene expression to increase risk of a disease, to increase inflammation, and also to drop um, how we feel, to change how we feel. In fact, there's one study that I talked about in the book where you know, just perseverating, just sort of being locked into the negative loop could be um, hinged in epigenetic changes. And, and I think also sort of allowing ourselves to stay in a negative loop could really change epigenetics. So epigenetics could change us and our behavior can then can also change epigenetic expression. Um, So to that end, I would say that loneliness would absolutely negatively influence epigenetics. And we can look at community and the ability to increase production of, you know, the love hormone, oxytocin, et cetera, cuddling, connection, community. Um, and, and, and those positive influences are certainly associated with longevity and with reduced risk of the diseases of aging and so forth. So conversely, yeah, you know, I haven't read mm-hmm. literature directly on loneliness, but um, I, I don't understand. Yeah, I, think, I, 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 I don't think that it would escape, you know, having a negative influence. Yeah, I would say loneliness or alienation, disconnection is a byproduct of trauma-inducing events. Um, and yeah. I know that you reference 
a, uh, I believe in the late nineties, there was a significant ice storm yes. in, um, mm-hmm. the project, I ice think storm. it was in Montreal yep. or, uh, in, in Quebec somewhere. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that caused a l- tremendous amount of duress mm-hmm. for pregnant mothers. And then there was a downstream Im- impact of that. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it caused a lot of stress for everybody, but in they studied <laughs> right. pregnant yeah. women. So they studied the offspring mm-hmm. of pregnant women and um, those women who experienced heightened stress, physical, so it's freezing and you have no power, et cetera. So there's a physical stress component, but also emotional. And there really wasn't a difference between the two. There was no mm-hmm. difference. Um, gave birth to kids, most likely, uh, with a higher incidence of autism and a higher incidence of, of allergies, of asthma specifically. Mm-hmm. Mm. So this is a stressful experience, physical and emotional, either or or both, that changed epigenetic expression in offspring and increased disease risk. Right. We'll pull on that thread a little bit more in terms of meditation, restoration, relaxation, sleep, what is uh, what are some of your protocols around um, those areas? So stress is pro aging; it's potently pro aging, um, and we can see that stress changes DNA methylation. So to your point, you know, loneliness can be profoundly stressful. So that could be another angle one might look at it. But yeah, so we can see stress as potently pro-aging. I would, I, I articulated in the book as being like gasoline on the fire of aging. In the particular clock we used, 25% of those methylation sites were influenced by glucocorticoids, by the, you know, by cortisol, the stress hormone. Um which to me just shows how extraordinarily potent stress is um, on biological aging. Um, conversely, when you look in the literature on you know contemplative practices or centering practices, so meditation, yoga, tai chi, etc., they are potently anti-aging. And you see folks who are practiced meditators, they are biologically younger. And there was a really interesting study looking at biological age um, in cardiovascular disease. I think they they had a healthy population and then they had heart disease patients and the healthy population and not the heart disease. And it'd be interesting to sort of figure out why. I don't, I don't know the answer to that, but they got younger using a meditation practice. Um, Beyond that, we see that it doesn't take a lot. We see you can see favorable changes to DNA methylation, so favorable gene ch- gene expression changes with just one uh, practice. But lasting anti-aging changes happen with a regular con- contemplative practice. It's just really cool. So you, you start the journey, and yep, you're going to get benefits right up front. They show that with, with exercise as well. Um, stick with the journey and, you know, the dividends, the rewards increase. Yeah. Now, obviously, developing a meditation practice has myriad knock-on beneficial impacts. Um, Methylation was a new one for me, but obviously, you know, the growth of additional gray matter never hurts or, uh, you know, essentially being able to move yourself you know, out of your sympathetic nervous system and into yes. a rest and digest or parasympathetic state to be able to essentially control um, neuromodulators like 
cortisol. And of course, the world at this juncture feels to be amygdala hijacked um, and in a constant place of cortisol infusion. And that is really mm-hmm. mortgaging our ability to leverage our prefrontal cortex to have rational yes. conversation and you know our yeah. ability to cooperate with each other. But then all these other downstream impacts around dysbiosis in the gut, which can lead to intestinal permeability, which can lead to, you know, chronic inflammation or, you know, blood glucose spikes, which can lead to glycation and advanced, uh, you know, these ages that can, you know, gum up essentially your vascular system and and lead to cardiovascular disease. So there's every reason in the world to, to, to adopt a uh, meditation practice. Of course, it also is a very, um, provides a very different kind of way to experience yourself too. Um, so, uh, we don't need to probably cheerlead anymore for meditation. There's, there's so many reasons to do it. Um, and get younger I'm cu- if you do need a motivation. And get younger. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so. Well, let me you, actually, let yeah, me say this. I want to just add this if we, and we may be getting there in our podcast, but, um, as we start to get closer to sort of cracking what causes aging, um, there is research emerging that really suggests that the most root cause may be DNA methylation and epigenetic changes. And so going to this source and working from this, thinking about um, gene expression, and I'm going back to meth- going back to meditation because this was our topic. But you know that may be like a root cause anti-aging intervention because you are favorably changing DNA methylation, and there is some evidence that that might be the crux of where aging begins. So all mm. of these interventions, like you know, don't take them lightly. I mean, they're powerful and you know potentially just life life altering. Can you explain what adaptogens are? Yeah, so these are the phytochemicals. Um, let, you know, favorites include green tea, um, curcumin, um, luteolin, quercetin, um, fisetin, uh, what else? Lutein, on and on, resveratrol, um, sulforaphane, diendolmethane, on and on. These are the, so these are the phytochemicals found in plants um, that seem to direct where DNA methylation is happening. That's how I explain it. So, you know, again, going back to our findings, we didn't increase net DNA methylation in our participants as compared to controls. Um, We rearranged how it was happening. And so our methyl donors kept methylation going and these, these, what we call methylation adaptogens, I think directed where it happened towards a more favorable and youthful um, pattern. That's how I think of these methylation adaptogens. And there's tons and tons of them. We have our favorites, but um, there's so, so, so many. And in the nutrient appendix, I talk you know, endlessly about food sources for these extraordinary nutrients. Honestly, every forkful could be a gene whispering epinutrients. So both, we call them epinutrients at this point. So methyl donors or these methylation adaptogens, um, both influence epigenetic expression. Epinutrients. I love it. So if, 
if someone wants to essentially avail themselves of the younger you protocol and start to adopt this kind of uh, this myriad of modalities and dietary choices around adaptogens and a low glycemic diet and sort of a quasi plant forward keto diet that um, you outlined, obviously exercise, restorative practices, sleep. Um, one can also kind of self-assess and monitor their own progress around bioage um, as they go. Now, yes. clearly some of these more advanced um, bioage clocks are becoming more commercially available, yes. um, but you have also designed a number of self-assessments where people can, um, you know, just get a, get a handle on tr in terms of where they are as they go through this protocol. Can you just uh, can talk a little bit about those? Yeah, so we, we created what we call the BASA, Biological Age Subjective Assessment or Self-Assessment. Um, and it's in the book, yeah. So yes, if you can afford to get a biological age clock, do it. There's a list of, of, of labs that you can consider using in the book. Um, and I would say to go for it uh, if you can, but they are some of, they are relatively cost prohibitive still. Um, but you can do our, our biological age self-assessment and this will give you an idea of your starting point. Um, you can see what you're good at, you can see what you're struggling with, and you can just start to make your changes and you can do it, you know, midway. Actually, you can take it weekly. If I were doing the, if I were starting my eight week program for the first time, I would take the, the BASA every week and just see how I'm doing. Um, and you'll see a change. It doesn't have, we, we purposely designed it so that it's not, it doesn't have a ton of wiggle room. You're not going to do Arbasa and find yourself, you know, being 20, but you'll, okay. you'll definitely see some favorable shifts, um, as you do our program. Uh, for me, I sit too much. I need to be over on that exercise desk over there but I have my lighting set up here and so it's just yeah. easier although I although know. now with my son coming in it's it's not so great but um yeah you'll be able to just look at it and see what you can improve see what you're already doing right etc I think it's easy and it's fun and it's cheap it's not validated it's not scientifically validated but we actually may be able to validate it over time um, as we collect more data in the app and then there's a symptom questionnaire. So you want to be feeling good while you're on this program. Um, by and large, that's the feedback we get. So even from the healthy men, uh, they felt good. Some of them lost weight. Not all of them needed to. We didn't, you know, there was nothing significant because we weren't working with men that were heavy. But I know at least a couple of the guys in our study lost weight. In clinic practice, we see it happen routinely when people need to lose weight or we see their inflammation markers drop, et cetera. Um, in the app, as we move, as we expand the population we're working with, we people feel awesome. So there's a um, medical symptom questionnaire in there as well. And I would take that every week. Make sure you're heading in the right direction. Yeah. Um, I was funny. I landed on the same one that you did uh, in terms Sitting. of my Achilles heel, which yeah. I was like, oh, man, I was crushing it all the way until that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, oh, that ruined my score. Um, <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, no, I'm still very proud it's of my true. score. Well, um, well, I'm sure you're doing great. What is your oh, score? Yeah, Can I ask you? It was, uh, I think it was negative 3.7. 
That's awesome. That's a really so, good score. We cape it's tight on purpose, and so a three point seven is very good. Yeah, I mean, but I've also been incorporating a lot of these practices for some time now. Mm-hmm. Um, I do sixteen eight every day. Now, of course, not everybody can do that, um, but now it's become completely normal for me. Um, yes, and it, and it and it really works. Um, you know, I've sort of trained my body um, in a way. And by sixteen eight, for those people who aren't familiar with that, I, I basically consolidate all of my eating into an eight hour block between eleven and seven, more or less. And and I'm not neurotically fundamentalist about it. I'll still go out to dinner and you know push the edges of that. And so what you know just. But yeah. I try to eat my last bite more or less two and a half to three hours before I go to sleep. Um, Good. So that when I'm entering sleep. Um, I'm in a quasi fasted state and can avail myself of sleep's uh, um, restorative processes and whatnot. Awesome. Good. Yeah. So that, and then, you know, I've been on a kind of plant forward keto protocol for the last almost about a year and I stopped drinking about a year ago. So, you know, all of those things added up. I lost 35 pounds. You know, wow. that, that's just sort of. Um, a byproduct. I wasn't looking to lose weight per se, but that was a, I suppose, a happy byproduct um, of the whole thing, at least according to my wife. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But it's more like, you know, I feel great and I'm, and, uh, and I'm clear. I've noticed, you know, greater mental acuity um, and increased ability to, to learn. Um, Because for example, like I don't have any medical training. I don't know anything about medical science. I mean, this is, I, I think, you know, COVID for better or worse pushed everyone into moonlighting as a microbiologist. And, you know, I, I kind of went along with that and was like, hmm, I really am curious about virology and vaccinology. I want to really know how all this stuff works. And, you know, one thing led to another and all of a sudden I'm in like, you know, mammalian target of rapamycin and reading <laughs> primary source data and I'm on PubMed at night, you know, wow. <laughs> my wife is like, you're crazy. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, um, but, um, but anyways, I mean, this actually could be a good segue because, you know, a lot of the things that you talk about, I think in terms of the protocols, like eating well, sleeping well, moving, community, meditation, these modalities are what I call old and true. They've been essentially proven over millennia. Yeah. And now we actually, the, the beautiful thing now is now we can open up the hood of the car and actually look into empirical yeah. data around them. So that's new. Yeah. But there was a lot of intuition, even by the Buddha, <laughs> yeah. you know, 2,500 years ago that, um, that, you know, meditation could be a salve uh, and, uh, or, you know, from craving and um, Trishna, and et cetera, and, and help us move towards uh, a sense of nirvana or letting go. So, but um, kind of running alongside some of these older, more proven protocols is what I sort of consider the Wild West, um, the new frontiers of the longevity and and biohacking movement, um, which encompasses a lot of very new science. Um, 
new science that hasn't necessarily been able to undergo a lot of rigorous randomized clinical clinical trials um, like yours, uh, and that has spilled over into significant self experimentation. So I want to just probe your opinions about this, and you do address this later on in the book. But um, you know, what are your feelings about taking things like rapamycin um, or metformin, for example, as a in the pursuit of longevity? So, I guess what I would say is that. I mean, so the, the, the individual who decides rapamycin is for them or metformin is for them, um, they still need to eat. <laughs> uh, they still need to sleep. I, I think this could form a foundational structure and you can modify it. So using it in clinical practice, we've found these tools to be very modifiable to other dietary patterns. So you could do your 16-8, obviously, and follow this. Or somebody who's got IBS and is on a low FODMAP diet can still use these. So I would say that regardless of where you're falling on the biohacker continuum, um, these principles should still be incorporated. Like it's just it's just a 100% no-brainer to me. There's been more attention these days to not eating and to the empty space and no food versus the nutrient density of when you're consuming food. I think hopefully that pendulum will balance out a little bit and we'll realize how much power we have in actually choosing the information on our fork to direct our body. Um, I think we've lost sight of that in, in, in some ways uh, lately. So I think that um, there's, there's a place, probably a place for rapamycin, um, you know, much lower than what we use in, in transplant patients and a small amount of it might be both healthy and, um, you know, health span promoting. I think the science is kind of leaning towards that. Metformin, um, so we know keeping blood sugar low and metformin has other other benefits beyond just just lowering blood sugar, it might help with mitochondrial rejuvenation. But it's a bit of a toxin if you if you take it and you exercise. I mean, there's a lot of nuances to how to use metformin, and there's and 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 that's probably true with rapamycin, like how and when you take it. And um, using metformin outside of diabetics, we just don't know. I mean, um, Nur Barzilai, if I'm saying his name right, I mean he's at the front of researching this, his, his, he and his team, and they are looking at using it outside of diabetics. And, you know, we just really need to pay attention to what he finds. Um, so I, I, I guess what I would say is that if people, I'm, I'm a fan of leaning on some of these interventions, um, if they're appropriate, um, if we all jump on them, or if we, I know some folks are going higher and higher with rapamycin. I sort of follow mm -hmm. a handful of those threads on Twitter. You know, we're in, yeah. we're entering into just unknown territory. Um, so there's a lot of self-experimentation going on. I mean, people are using the gene editing software CRISPR, you know, and hoping that they edit out, you know, the, the genes that are, that, that, um, you know, promote disease, et cetera, or promote, you know, a shortened lifespan or, you know, they're trying to manipulate longevity 
by, with gene editing. And I just, that's just beyond like, that's just really scary to me. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> um, but you know what? I'm, I, I'm all for sort of a careful explore, exploration of, of, you know, using hormone replacement, if that's something that's appropriate for you. So I don't, I, and I, and it doesn't need to be exclusive. Um, yeah. The research that I cited earlier, looking at turning back skin cells, so a 50 plus year old skin cell back to a 20 something skin cell or mice, you know, old mice back to young mice. They did it in a age-related optic neuropathy and, you know, these mice were blind and then they changed epigenetic expression and they could see, I mean, and these were using mm-hmm. transcription factors called Yamanaka factors. Um, and so we know you can make, you can create youth by changing, you know, DNA methylation and demethylation. It's been shown in these cells and animal studies. It doesn't just automatically translate into humans. Humans are infinitely more complex than animals. Um, but I'm paying attention to it. I think it's I think it's really interesting. And at the very end of the book, I ponder, you know, and you brought this up earlier, you know, Latsu, like all of this wisdom. My it's my expectation that you know, just like we might store trauma or store tra- um, stress in our epigenome, that we're also storing our wisdom. It's showing up mm. as DNA, you know, methylation, these biochemical marks. And if we just turn back the hand to time with something aggressive like Yamanaka factors or, you know, perhaps a high dose rapamycin or something, maybe, I don't know that, I think rapamycin has been studied long enough where it's probably not changing DNA, but, but these Yamanaka factors, I mean, would we, would we risk like wiping free some of that wisdom that we've worked so hard at accumulating? I mean, I just think that's fascinating in this quest for youth. You know, I mean, how is it that we would just sort of preserve muscle, maybe preserve brain size, you know, preserve, you know, youthful skin, et cetera, but not erase some of that, you know, hard won learning that we all go through, you know, as we become clean potatoes. Yeah, it's it brings up all sorts of really fascinating philosophical and ethical dilemmas and questions. You know, sometimes I think about kind of in this pursuit of amortality, if essentially, you know, you could live forever, if you could figure out some technique that you could make any cell pluripotent, basically. Yeah. Well, those are, that's what Yamanaka factors do. Yeah. Right. Would you ever go outside? Because the only way that you would die would be to get hit by a bus. <laughs> so would you basically like start to live with so much fear <laughs> because all of a sudden we've found all these keys to amortality. And it's it, it's very strange. I mean, I think it it kind of goes back to the conversation that we prodded at earlier is that, you know, are humans essentially determined to die? And are we here for a particular time and, you know, to as, as animated information um, and to be here and to connect with everything around us and then be part of this sort of continuous cycle of energy and then pass the baton forward such that, you know, asparagus and roses can grow in a field you know yeah. um and yeah. it gets a little you know potentially uh 
uh, overly poetic, but you know, I, I do think that there is an ethical question around the nature of longevity, and uh, and I and I love the way that you approach it um, because I think you know that by using these modalities and focusing on the things that are old and true, that they're more aligned with what it actually means to be human instead of essentially trying to shunt some sort of artificial um, hack into what it's potentially into something that's not really human per se. And um, anyways, I think it's, it's a fascinating, you know, conversation and i think it's one that's sort of playing out yeah Um, my only concern or worry is that there'll be so much momentum around things like CRISPR or yamanaka that we uh skip over some of the more uh ethical and philosophical debates that yeah yeah absolutely so i mean it just seems like how humans roll isn't it we tend to (laughs) just skip over that yeah for sure i mean i was reading one scientist's book the bat at the end of it was great you know he got into the biochemistry of the kind of some of the work he's done howard catcher his name is um but in the beginning it was all this exploration of like space travel and we need to colonize mars if we're going to live forever you know we need to be have more room if humans live forever i mean it was it it's pretty it's pretty outrageous. I mean, and it definitely, it falls outside of our diet and lifestyle program for sure. But I think it's, it's interesting. I I think it's something that we should be, we should be considering. I mean, we do have these Yamanaka factors. We do have CRISPR now. We have, you know, the longevity space as, as we were talking about earlier is, you know, just massively exploding and billions and billions and billions of dollars are just being poured into it. You know, Altos Lab, which is rumored to be, you know, funded by, by, um, Jeff Bezos has hired like the best and brightest longevity biogerontologists from around the world. And it's not just in California. It's in, I think it's in Cambridge, in the UK. Mm -hmm. I think it's also in Asia. And the best, like Yamanaka himself is, has been recruited Mm -hmm. to, to Altos. I mean, Mm, the guy who discovered, who got the Nobel for Yamanaka factors is now at, you know, the supposedly Bezos funded Altos lab. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Steve Horvath, who, well, who published the first clock, is yeah. at Altos. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. I didn't As know is that. Morgan Levine, his, um, you know, post extraordinary oh, postdoc who was at Yale. She's now, yeah. I mean, I think there's a yeah. bunch of Nobels. So th- well, this is it. Yeah. I mean, and it's fascinating and it's, it's amazing work. And mm-hmm. at the same time, we can't lose sight of what makes life worthwhile in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. I th- these um, conver- I think these conversations, Jeff, are just going to become all the more important. Yeah. Well, I look forward to having more of them with you. Um, and I really thank you for your work. I'm, I'm very, Thanks. very grateful for it. I've really, really enjoyed uh, delving into the book and all the associated protocols associated with it. And just as a general point, you know, I think you know, you're just a very supportive and warm and intelligent voice giving people agency uh, over their own health and really helping to unwind, you know, this culture of, of sick care where we just yeah. endlessly treat symptoms with drugs uh, without assessing root causes. And you're really helping people to, to thrive and not just survive. So 
Kara. I'm very, very grateful for your work and for your time today. And I, I hope this is the beginning of many conversations. Oh, indeed. Yeah, me too. And, Thanks so uh, much for inviting me on. Yeah. And I just couldn't recommend the book Younger You uh, anymore. And obviously I'll be linking to it and posting about it and we'll be cutting up all sorts of social pieces for uh, for Instagram and Facebook, to some degree Facebook, and obviously on YouTube. And, and uh, I can't wait to release this podcast. So thanks, Kara. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Kara Fitzgerald. You can keep abreast of Kara's work at drkarafitzgerald.com and be sure to pick up a copy of her new book, Younger You. And if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you're a regular listener, you know how much effort that we put into this show's creation and we really do our best to keep sponsors to a minimum. This is not one of those shows where I prattle on for 15 minutes uh, on ads at the beginning. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way is to subscribe to Commute. You'll access more than 100 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders. You can check it out for 14 days for free at onecommune.com trial. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly at any time with comments, questions, suggestions, etc. I read every single email, and my email is jeffk at onecommune.com. Lastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible, including Jacob Lau, Megan Stone, Ruby Foster, Emma Fred, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the Commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you. <laughs>